Ladies and gentlemen, non-QM is back. You're listening to the Mortgage Leadership Outlook, and I'm your host, Andrew Berman. Today, we're excited to have one of the executives that's leading the charge, bringing non-QM back, Keith Lind, Executive Chairman, Vice President of Acra Lending. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Andrew Berman from National Mortgage Professional. Thank you so much for joining us for another Mortgage Leadership Outlook, uh, where we've been meeting us starting with uh, you know 2020 uh, with some of the, the, the biggest, uh, brightest, uh, and most influential uh, executives in the mortgage business. And today is uh, just a, such a great honor uh, to have Keith Lind, who's Executive Chair and Vice President of Acrolending. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So listen, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things I, I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, you, you know, it's it's interesting, actually, you know, the the uh, let's call it the, the year that you guys have had, uh, you know, from uh, from actually, you know, obviously the the pause on non-QM, uh, the, the the everything we were dealing with from our operation. And then you guys actually, you know, wrap up with a with a, a rebrand, uh, which I, I want to get it because it's a lot more than a rebrand. But first, let's start off back when to. When Keith actually you know, was a little boy and said, I want to grow up to be a mortgage banker, right? Does that, that happen? <laughs> Not exactly, but that sort of is what happened, yes. Well, well, so what, when, you were going, when you were growing up, when you decided to go to school, um, what actually, you know, what, what was your, what was your, your dream? We'll, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, where you went from there. But, you know, initially, but when you were thinking about your career, what was that career looking like? Yeah, you know, I, I always said I want, wanted to get into finance, right? You know, and finance is such a broad, right? It, it's such a broad, uh, such a broad business, right? And I was at Purdue University. Um, I was actually, I was at Spring Break, and I was at a leadership conference. And um, you know, afterwards they had uh, said that there were there were some recruiters, um, and, and this was in Mexico, and. I was one of the few that stepped up and, and put my name down and said I'd be interested because they did mention the job was in New York. <laughs> um, after some some tough interviews and, and a lot of chasing and uh, following up, I was able to land uh, an interview at Bear Stearns, um, where uh, you know where I ended up getting my first job um, out of college, um, and, and sort of the rest is history. But I had you know a great started there in 2001, um, you know up until. They were acquired by J.P. Morgan, uh, but it was it was an incredible experience. Uh, worked with a lot of very intelligent, smart people. Learned the um, the structured products business um, really from front to back. Um, you know, started off on the financial analytics desk for the first two years while while I was at Bear Stearns, and then I went to the trading desk where I was structuring deals and purchasing whole loans, and then after that I went to uh, strictly trading bonds. Um, so you know. They really the, the the education, um, you know, and sort of you know it, it was tough, right? You worked a lot of hours, um, but all of it paid off, and I and I think it, it you know I don't I don't think um, you know it's unfortunate Bear Stearns isn't around anymore, but I think the, the 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 fast desk is you know which is where I started was one of the best educational platforms of, you know for anyone entering you know the bond side of Wall Street, um, where you really you know they had great leaders teaching. Um, and, and I really learned a lot. 
So, and, and what what do you think actually, you know, from, from those days, you know, from, from you know, uh, being on the other side of the business, not being on the origination side of the business, uh, like what, what did you learn actually from those that, that, that helps you uh, with, with, with ACRA, that, that helps you actually, you know, um, you know uh, put this organization together? You know, I, I think anytime you're a trader, right, you need to understand risk. And I think if there's anything I took out of being a bond trader, it's understanding risk, liquidity, um, counterparties, um, right? So, you know, and I, and I think that's something that, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but I was able to put to work right away when we bought the company in February and COVID hit a month later. Um, you know, I think we, you know, the firm, the company, the management team, I think we did a very good job managing risk, uh, securing the balance sheet. Um, and, and I think, you know, if, if there's one thing I would say that you learn by being a sell-side trader is understanding risk and, and being able to make quick decisions, right? Um, making decisive decisions. Um, so so I, I think that's what, you know, what I took out of, the, you know, my previous life be, being on the sell side and bringing that here. I think that's probably the, you know, the, the biggest piece I was able to bring here. Now, going from that side to an operating company, there's a lot of stuff I still need to learn, um, you know, which I'm doing, but, but, I, but, but there's definitely a lot of overlaps as well. So, so we, well, I mean, what's an area that you that you feel like you need to uh, like kind of kind of learn that, that that you feel like the, you know, you're you're not at at the the high level that you want to be yet. I, you know, the transition again coming to a an operating company. It's it's you know when you're a trader, you sit there and, and you're trading bonds all day, right? And and you're maybe dealing with some salespeople. When I stepped in here, I stepped into 260 employees. Right, um, and, and, and when COVID hit, which was unfortunate, you know, we had to go from 260 to 160, um, and now we're all, all, already back to, I think, above 260. Um, so, so it's people skills, right? I would say is the biggest thing. I think it's leadership, um, right? And, and that's not something that you're gonna be exposed to, that headcount, right? And, and, and the problems that you encounter, um, and, and empowering your managers and your leaders within the firm. Right, and, and that's something that um, I, I completely encourage. Right, and, and have, making sure there's open lines of communication. Right, and people can raise concerns and, and be able to communicate and talk to their the managers or myself. So, so it, it, it's it, a big portion of that is people. Right, dealing with people and, and leading uh, and leading those people. So, and was was there actually a point actually when when like from here you're at Bear Stearns. Uh, you know, and went to RBS, uh, but like, when was the point that you actually said, so um, being actually in the C-suite, uh, being actually an executive for a mortgage banker is is something actually that you wanted to see in your career? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it happened, you know, after Bear Stearns RBS, then I went to Brevin Howard, uh, which was a fabulous experience for two years. Um, and then after, in 2017, I went to HBS. And I think what happened was it was just this continual continual grind tighter in spreads. There wasn't a lot of opportunities as a trader um, in, in 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, and, and there wasn't much to do at, at HPS, unfortunately. Um, I'm, you know, I fully appreciate the, the senior management team at HPS, um, you know, listening to, to the opportunities that I thought would be beneficial, right? Looking at in the non-chem sector um, and they supported it. And, and we spent a lot of time looking at um, you know, what those opportunities look like, what the risk was, what the, re what the reward was. Um, and, and eventually, you know, we found Citadel, which is now Acra, 
um, and, and they powered myself and the rest of the deal team to make this, you know, to, to make this come to fruition. So, you know, listen, I, I think it was a process. It, it wasn't one day I woke up and said I would do this, but I thought when the opportunity presented itself, it was it, that was the next step, right? I, I thought, you know, I had spent enough time um, on the sell side, and I think coming to run an operating company, which I think has a tremendous uh, growth opportunity, I, I just felt like that was the right time. So, so was, it, was there ever a time actually during the transition, like so? Here, everything is falling apart. Actually, March 2000, uh, 2020, where you said, "What did I do?" <laughs> like, was there was ever a point where you had actually a, uh, um, I mean, I regret, but uh, you know, just a like a, oh crap, what did I get myself into? Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't, you know, I, I think my first thought was, "Is this really happening again?" Because because I went through the crisis, right, the housing crisis at Bear Stearns. And these are supposed to be like once, you know, once in your career events. And I'm like, is this really happening again? Um, I don't, you know what? I Listen, I, I knew it was going to be a long road ahead, um, but I knew we did it to my earlier point. I knew we did a really good job managing the balance sheet and, and the risk and putting ourselves in a great position to, to, to come out of this stronger and better than maybe our competition, right? So when I thought we could gain market share and be, you know, be, you know, really a leader uh, moving forward. And, you know, the five months we had off, the amount we accomplished, you know, was really uh, staggering. Um, you know, we added $700 million of, of warehouse partnerships, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs and Barclays, to name a few, uh, Next Bank, Bank of California as well. Um, so, so you know, we, we had, I walked in, we had $200 million of warehouse capacity. And, you know, we just closed our last facility. So we're north of $900 million now. We made major improvements in technology on the servicing side and the operating side, right? To make things more efficient, to 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 really help out the operation side. And I think that's one thing that lacks in the mortgage space. There is there is definitely you know the mortgage space in general is behind the times in technology, and it's something we noticed and something that that we're definitely making strides to fix. Um, and then also human capital, right? Making you know making hires of you know with people that have have superior experience. Um, that believe in the vision that myself and, and, and the rest of the management team do. Um, you know, an example is Jeff Lemieux, who we hired um, to, to build out our correspondent division. Um, he was at Cerberus GMAC. He, he's, been, he's been in the industry for a long time. Um, we just hired a, a new uh, Bernice Gonzalez, our new head of HR. Um, and, and again, just two people. But, but we are, I, I think, we've, you know, we've honed in, you know, the way our, the way we're analyzing and looking at candidates that want to join here and want to succeed with us. Um, so, so the five months off, yeah, I mean, I, I knew it was going to be a long road, um, but that was okay. And I think, you know, I can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel now, uh, which is rewarding. We're about 70 to 75% of, of, where, of where we were um, pre-COVID. Oh, wow. uh, we rolled out, you know, we rolled out a, a new product in the Jumbo Prime program, which is taking off very well. Um, so I'm excited, right? Yeah, but to your point, yeah, was I concerned? I was definitely concerned. I was concerned more about the industry and borrowers, right? Um, and, and, the, and the people we made loans to. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, there's something to be said for how much better the underwriting and compliance is today than, than pre-housing crisis in 2009 10. So, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you feel actually led to, because uh, from what I understand, um, like non-QM loans, uh, most lenders I talked to have held up during this time. 
Um, so what do you think actually, you know, has, has caused actually, you know, the, you know, because listen, I mean, in March, when March was happening and all of a sudden non-QM lenders were having, having difficulties, I was like, well, these are many cases, business owners and business owners are going to be the ones actually, you know, hit first. Um, so why do you feel actually that, that, um, the non-QM has still been performing pretty well, uh, you know, during, during this time? Take a step back to you know when COVID hit, right, and, yeah. and it got really bad. That, that that was a liquidity crisis. That wasn't non-QM loans were going bad. That was yeah. there's no cash and people don't want to put cash to work, yeah. right? And and everyone's waiting for this big opportunity to buy loans at 20 cents on the dollar like they did during the housing crisis, right? That never came to fruition. Um, and I and I think there was so much money on the sidelines waiting for this great opportunity in the RMBS space, and the RMBS space isn't that big because you know if you look at the mortgage market. Right, the 11 trillion mortgage market, I believe, is where we're at today. So much of that is agencies, right? And they felt their own pain too, right? A lot of them thought they were potentially going out of business, right? So I, I think, you know, again, I alluded to some of the points: strong underwriting, um, you know, a tighter credit box than than, than what you know previously, you know, back towards a housing crisis. Um, but also, you know, the Fed did a good job keeping rates low. Home prices did well. People wanted to buy homes. Um, so there's a big demand for homes. So I think all of that's helped. Um, and, you know, I, we look at the modification, I'm sorry, we look at the forbearance numbers in our servicing portfolio. And I think a lot of that, you know, that's up to our investors. You know, we're a servicer and we originally originate the loan and then sell it. Yeah. So our investors made the decision on what to do on forbearance. And I'm sure there's a fair amount of borrowers that took the free option and said, give me forbearance. Um, I know we did a small securitization. It was about 110 loans in June. We didn't want to sell the loans, but we wanted to, um, you know, we wanted to manage risk correctly. We thought the loans were worth more than where they were trading. So, we, you know, we did that securitization and, and people asked for forbearance, but we made them prove a financial hardship. And I think of the 110 loans, only one person could prove that they needed forbearance. <laughs> so, so I think that's a good example of, of you know, you know, I, I, I think non-QM performed very well. Right. And and I think over time, a lot of these forbearances will roll off and these people will stay current. Um, but even if they were, you know, if there's going to be situations where people are forced to liquidate, their home is going to be worth more probably today than when they than when they got the loan. Yeah, 100 percent. So. All right. So so during this all this whole time, you guys are in the background. Uh, so. COVID's happening. You guys are preparing a, a, a rebrand, this, which is like, I mean, it's, I, I hate even calling it a rebrand because it's not even a rebrand. It's a, it's like, it's like you've, you've basically kind of, um, you know, just kind of uh, re, remodeled the entire, the entire company. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, what the major difference is, you know, from um, Citadel to, to Acro uh, Landing, because it's, it's more than just a pretty logo now. Yeah, I think, listen, um, <clears throat> there's a couple of points that, that I would hit on, right? Um, I, I think, you know, when we came in, um, you know, I, I'm not sure the previous management team spent a lot of time on, on the branding. It, it, you know, it was, it, it was a business, they built a great business, but I don't think, you know, the previous management team wasn't into logos and and, and getting, you know, and, and really spending a lot of money in marketing. Um, so from that standpoint, I think n number one was there is a Citadel in, in Chicago, <laughs> Ken Griffin, right, that, that, we, that the company would get confused with. So, um, so I thought clearing that up was important. I thought a fresh look, right? And then, you know, what we did was when we got here and even prior to closing on the company, 
we, we got a lot of broker feedback and customer feedback on things that we could do better. Right. And I think, you know, part of that, you know, was going to help with a rebrand, right. And getting a new fresh name out, a, a new leadership style, right. A new approach to customers. Right. Um, I think, you know, some of the feedback that we got wasn't so great. It was, you know, Citadel tends to over condition loans. Citadel is the lender of last resort. So my goal was to change all of that. Right. And, and want to work with brokers. Right. And, 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 and figure out how, how can we get deals done without, you know, I think maybe historically it was a no, right. Without trying to figure out a solution. Now we want to figure out a solution for everybody. Right. Um, but it's a culmination of a lot of pieces. Right. But, but I think, I think us coming out and, you know, it's, it's, it's a new leadership vision across the, the senior management team, not just myself. Um, you know, it, it's a new culture that we're building. Right. And, and, and we thought a, a rebrand would really be the icing on the cake to, to get all this uh, driven in the right direction. So what is ACRA? Like what, what is actually, you know, the tell like where, where did you guys come up with it, the name ACRA? <laughs> It, it, it was uh, it was someone on the deal team came up with it. We, we were trying to Acros and actually it, it is a fortress just like Citadel. So um, so you know staying within the staying within those boundaries um, is what we were trying to do. Um, but we love the way it came out. I, I think the reception from everybody um, has been very positive. Um, so so not a big story to that at all. Yeah, that's that's great. So uh, and I mean from an employee standpoint, but from, from people actually that, that are, you know, that were working, you know, at Citadel, like what, what were the changes that they felt? Uh, because from what I understand, it's, it, it's also been like a cultural change, you know, within the organization, um, you know, besides like, you know, certain policies and procedures changing and different, different people coming in place. Like what, what is, what is the difference that, that someone feels uh, going to work at, at Acro versus, you know, when they were going to work at Citadel? Yeah, I mean, listen, I I can't really speak to the past, right? All, all I could do was come in here and, and, and sort of look at what what we had and the way the managers and the leadership team were doing their day to day, um, and it, it was too siloed, right? Everyone was protecting, all the managers were protecting their little businesses, and no one was communicating. So when I came in, I you know I just let everyone know that we're going to have an open forum, ideas are going to be shared, the managers aren't going to you know, are going to protect, they're going to empower people around them. Right. And, and that's the way we're going to, that's the way we're going to build, um, you know, the new franchise. And I, it's been super beneficial. And listen, I, I, it's not that the previous way was wrong and this way is right. Right. This is just, I'm bringing in, um, you know, my, my leadership style. Um, I think it's, you know, and listen, not everyone, I don't think everyone was a fan of my approach and that's okay. Right. Um, but I think a majority have been. I, I think the managers, um, you know, the senior management team uh, really likes the patterns and, and the success that, that they've been seeing. Um, you know, and, you know, you don't you don't change culture in a week or, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So this is going to take some time. Right. And some people um, I don't know. Right. Some people might not like it. And, and you know, I'll do my best to, to work with them. But um, I can tell you um, a high percentage like the new change of where we're headed and the approach and putting the customer first. Right. And making sure at the end of the day, this is a great customer experience because that's my goal. Right. If, if you have a great customer experience with with employees that want to come to work every day, um, the franchise is the company is going to do well. 
yeah, um, makes makes perfect sense. As I always say, happy borrower, uh, happy originator, happy borrower. You know, they all work to, we're all work together. The originator's happy. The the borrowers are going to be happy. So, listen, if you can talk to us a little bit about you know what, what you see actually in you know the future of non QM. Um, like what, what, what opportunities are, are there for, 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 for you guys as, as a, as a, uh, as a major player and also what opportunities are there for the originators that are, that are out there, uh, offering the non-QM products, uh, you know, on the street. Listen, I, I think it's a huge opportunity, right? And, you know, we'll see what happens with QM. I, you know, a lot of, a lot of rules are being changed around how non-QM is going to be treated moving forward. I don't, I don't tend to get caught up in all of that. I know the business that we have now is, is nascent. There's a lot of opportunity moving forward um, for, for not just us, for all of our competition. I want everyone to do well, right? Um, there is a big opportunity here. It's going to take a lot of originators to make that happen. I think COVID's made it a little, a, a lot more difficult for some of the smaller guys, yeah. right? It takes a lot more capital now than it did pre-COVID, but that's okay. I think I think people will probably figure that out, or there's going to be consolidation, and some of the bigger guys will get bigger. Um, but I think over the next couple of years, you know, non-QM is going to become more streamlined and more liquid and more efficient, just like the jumbo prime market. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the biggest positives I've taken out of this is we've got more investor calls from people that didn't care about non-QM pre-COVID, but care about it now because they saw how well it performed through COVID. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's just one of the stepping stones for us getting to, you know, for, for non-QM to get to the next level and, and, and be efficient, just like the jumbo prime market. Um, so what, what about originators that are out in the street? Like, what do you think the opportunities for them to get involved in non-QM? Like where, um, whether it's the kind of clients uh, or, or a strategy, is it, you know, do you think actually that they should be, you know, focusing their business on it or just kind of like, you know, when, when, it, uh, when it's a, um, you know, conventional form uh, fallout? I, listen, it, it, it depends on their expertise and, and, and how much money they want to, you know, invest in these businesses. You know, non-QM is a it, it, it's a it's a hands-on um, it's a hands-on underwriting, right? You get a lot. Every situation is different than the next, right? And I, I laugh. I talk to my our underwriters, our senior underwriters, and these guys are like professional professional puzzle builders, because you got to find out all the moving pieces, and if you don't, um, that could be problematic, right? And that could cause problems. So we have fabulous underwriters, um, an awesome operations team. They communicate great. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's on a, on, on a, on an operator by operator basis, whether they want to step into this space. Um, some may just say, I'll take the low hanging fruit agency yeah. business, but I do think when rates rise and, um, you know, there's so much focus from the brokers right now, focusing on the agency product, but when rates go up a little bit, the non-care market's going to have a strong tailwind. And I think there's a big opportunity coming. Yeah. So, um, and how, how are the, uh, the secondary markets, uh, reacting you know to um non-qm loans today very well i mean i i was just looking at a securitization that printed uh last week so we're back to pre pre-covid tights even tighter on the, on the senior bond which is the biggest part of the capital structure um and i think the biggest problem right now is that there's a technical that there's not there's not enough loans to buy right wow. um, everyone's so focused on the agency business i think we're one of the us and two two or three other people are one of the you know only people originating and selling loans to people a lot of the bigger originators right all that origination is spoken for they're either securitizing it themselves maybe the p firm that owns the company is taking the supply 
the hedge fund that has a hand or an investment in that company is taking the supply. So um, listen, I, I think any investor out there um, wishes there was more uh, loan origination to be bought um, for sure. So, so what, 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 is there is there a strategic advantage to to, to having that uh, you know where you're both the, you know doing the um, the origination and the servicing? Like what 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 is the advantage to, to an originator? Yeah. So, um, forget about actually you know what what whether it's more profitable or less risk or more risk. The people watching this, they don't care. They care about from from an origination standpoint. What is their benefit, you know, from doing business with with, with a company like you guys, you know, that that's creating the products, being innovative in, in the product creation, but also actually, you know, servicing that loan. Yeah, I mean, we we we're always talking to our capital partners that we sell loans to, and they're extremely complimentary over the fact that of how good we are as a servicer, number one, right? And and I think when you're selling loans to someone. Um, or in our case, we're a smaller servicer, um, and they know if there's an issue or they, they have a question about something, and they call Acra or, or the servicing side of our business is called Citadel Servicing. Still, yeah. they know who's going to pick up the phone, and they know they're going to get a response right away. When you're dealing with the bigger shops like uh, SPS and uh, you know, just using them as an example, not nothing, you know, <laughs> no harm there. Um, <laughs> Right, these guys are bigger, right? And, and the phone times on responses and attention to detail, unless you're there, I know it is from us. And our capital partners really appreciate that and they like it. So, you know, we are one of the only originators that sell our, our loan servicing retained. And we've had very few complaints. In the beginning, when we're dealing with a new capital partner, sometimes people sort of, you know, signing up a new servicer could be, uh, you know, uh, somewhat timely. Um, it does take time. Um, so, so, you know, there's some logistical hurdles, you know, when someone starts buying our loans. But I think, you know, once that's ironed out, um, people are happy uh, that we're servicing their loans. They think we do a very good job. And one thing I'll tell you, the servicing business is a profitable business, right? For us, I think I'll give you an example. When COVID hit, we took our headcount from 260 to 160. And for five months, we were able to basically stay cash flow neutral um, for those five months, retaining 160 people because of our servicing platform. Wow. So when we were originally looking, you know, when I was at HBS looking to make this this uh, this purchase, that was one of the reasons why we really liked Citadel over any of the other competitors we were talking to, yeah. because we knew the value of the servicing platform, right? If it's done correctly, and we knew Dan and Kyle built it correctly, so so we were happy to have it, and it's valuable. So, and, and from, from a, just, I'm just curious, like you're talking about the headcount, you know, as far as the employees, um, uh, are they back physically in offices or are, are, are most of them working remotely? Yeah, most are remote. I, I think 85% are remote, you know, the 15% because we are a servicer and we handle payments um, and accounting. Some of those people have to be in and then most of the senior management team comes in. Interesting. So, so that, I mean, that could potentially be a, a cost savings for for you guys. Um, I'm, I'm Possibly in the future, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, productivity. How did you find actually productivity actually as you know people actually you know uh, hunker down in their in their their home offices and basements? So I think we, you know we we put in very good guardrails about managing that risk um, and, and getting feedback on turn times and underwriting or processing or operations. So I don't think you know I don't um, you know. I think the jury's out whether whether we're more efficient, you know, working from home or from in the office. 
But I can tell you the, the, the performance is, is on par with where we were pre-COVID, and I think we're happy with that. And I think as we improve our technology, that's something over the next couple of months as we're implementing our new LOS system and some other systems, um, because technology is going to be a driver for us moving forward, right? We're, we are going to make that spend. We think it's we think it's worth it, and we think it'll pay off. And then we'll be able to better understand, um, you know, where we were pre-COVID and where we are now. And maybe make a more predictable experience, uh, you know, in non-QM, which is basically, I mean, when I talk to a lot of originators out there, um, that's one of the things that they that they actually uh, that they have a problem with, you know, when they're dealing with conforming, um, you know, they know actually what what the loan looks like and the, what the loan smell like that, that that's going to get approved and not get and not get approved. Um, Non-QM, they just they feel like they don't have that level of predictability from uh, what will get approved, what won't get, and how long it'll, how long it will take. So, do you think actually that technology will bring about a little more predictability in the business? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. We just signed up with a technology company that reads bank statements, right? <clears throat> now, you know, it takes, uh, you know, for, for one of our underwriters, depending on how many pages the bank statements are, let's say it's a year and it's 120 pages of bank statements to go through and figure everything out. This new technology does it in 10 to 15 minutes, right? So that's an example um, of, of something that, that we've invested in um, to help streamline um, and, uh, you know, the, the underwriting process. Um, and then we're, again, like I said, we're implementing a new LOS system. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, non-QM, there's a communication process because it's a more complicated loan. But, you know, we're turning loans in 30 to 40 days, right? The problem is these, bro you know, our brokers are very busy with a lot of loans. So if we're asking for a condition to be cleared, they might not focus on that because they're focusing on 10 other deals. So that's my point I said earlier, when, when the agency market cools down a little bit and rates are up, I think that's the tailwind that we're going to see because people are going to realize that we can close a loan in 30 to 40 days efficiently um, and consistently. Um, and and, and it'll, it'll get the broker's attention to say, you know what, let me focus on not coming a little more than I was. Cool. Cool. Very cool, man. Um, so listen, I, I want to wrap up with um, talk a little bit about your new Jumbo Prime. Um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, what led to the decision to roll out the new Jumbo Prime product? Um, well, you know, I'm not sure there was one decision. It was, it was, it was, it was a collective thought process, but it was something that I've seen coming from the sell side. Um, and you know, every bank I worked at had a jumbo conduit. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at the economics. What would it cost to build it out here? What are the margins? What are the risks? Um, and do we think this is something we could be competitive at? And you know, when I looked at all pieces, all four, three, four, five. Of those um, of those questions, I was able to check the box, right? So, so we partnered with Goldman Sachs to start off. Um, we're, we're talking to uh, uh, J.P. Morgan and, and Morgan Stanley potentially as well, um, but we're gonna have the ability to balance sheet this ourselves. Um, but Goldman's been Goldman's been great, and they've been helpful um, in, in getting us up and going. And um, the you know I, I could tell you I. We're we're submitting more loans than I thought three weeks into this, a lot more than I thought, which which I'm super happy about. Um, you know, the next question is we we just got to make sure we have the underwriters and the and the operations to back it up, which I I believe we do. Um, but that that's a common problem across the whole industry. But you know, listen, it's a five Andrew, it's a 500 billion dollar market, right? So it's tenfold of non QM probably. 
And um, you know, I think we we have one of the best operations platforms in, in, in the private lending space. So this was a product that made a lot of sense, and we're happy we we made that decision. So you see any other future opportunities uh, for product innovation? Yeah, we are. You know, we just spent the last two months uh, really putting pen, you know pen to paper and, and looking at the fix and flip business. So uh, we were close to hiring an operator. It didn't pan out, but we're speaking to a few others as as we speak. So I hope you know by midsummer, um, you know we will be launching a, fi a fix and flip product. Okay. Um, and, you know, and then from there, there's absolutely there's other products. You know, I'm not going to speak to them now. We're, you know, we're not. I haven't done enough work, but from my past life um, and speaking to our capital partners, there's products out there that people want us to originate. They trust us. They 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 really like the way we underwrite. So so we'll definitely be launching more products than just Jumbo Prime and Fix and Flip here in the next year or two. Fantastic. Super excited to hear about it. I mean, the, the, the uh, you know, the, how you guys dealt actually with, uh, you know, with the, the, the shutdown of 9QM, um, you know, came out strong, um, have a, a, a new brand, uh, you know, got some got some great product innovation, which is something actually I, I, I think that was uh, Citadel was always known for, um, you know, it's having actually great product innovation, you know, you know, good, good actually management, good, good sales support and great product innovation. Sounds like actually, you know, you've, you've took that legacy, you know, made a couple of tweaks to kind of upgrade it to make a better experience for the, for the borrowers. I know better experience for the, for the, for the brokers change, you know, a little, um, a little cultural changes inside to make it, make sure all employees are, uh, go to work and they're super happy and excited about the about the future um as i know i am <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us keith i really really appreciate it thank you very much for the opportunity all right and thank you so much for joining us for another mortgage leadership outlook where we go live every wednesday one o'clock pacific uh four o'clock uh, east coast time uh with the greatest leaders in the mortgage business uh so really really excited uh, next week we are going to have uh, uh phil treadwell who is going to be joining us uh we're going to go dig into a little bit of his career and also talk about uh the new app clubhouse that everyone's going crazy about uh so very very excited uh thank you for joining us uh have a great day and a great uh 2021